Hello, it's Jamie here, and welcome back to Bloody Bites. And today it's the rumble, not necessarily from the jungle, because the subject is tank, predator and prey, the big beast of the battlefield. And yes, like the last bloody bite, it's a subject that's very much in the news, the tank. It's been around a long time, and it has dominated the battlefield for a long time. And it's certainly rumbled into our consciousness, whether it's dominating the battlefield or destroyed on the battlefield. We all know about the tank. It really came into being in the First World War. We know about the Battle of Combray in November 1917, November the 20th, 1917, when 480 or so British Mark I tanks rumbled into action. About 380 actually went into action and stole the day, stole the moment, moved forward, broke through. And this was something quite extraordinary. There had been such a stalemate. The Brits had learnt from the paralysis of the Battle of the Somme, the difficulty of moving forward, that they had to break through. And the tank was the answer. They had come up with the, the, the little willy, it was called, that one prototype of the tank. And in true British form, they had given this armoured vehicle the name tank, the, the code tank, because it was really to dupe the Germans into thinking we were moving water tanks around the battlefield. And we've seen this in so many conflicts. The Brits come up with terms like the special air service to airbrush the fact that it's a special operations force or the inter-service liaison department, which was the military intelligence uh, unit in World War II that operated in places like Crete. So the tank came into being and initially it smashed through German lines at the Battle of Combray and it did well. But we didn't follow up. We had infantry and artillery, but they weren't particularly coordinated. We killed or took prisoner 7,000 uh, Germans, but the Germans mounted a massive counterattack and all those gains ended up being lost. But that was the arrival of the tank, the, the grand opening of the next 100 years of tank warfare. And in those days, we used the Mark I tank. There was the male version that had two six-pounders and the female version that had Vickers machine guns, a crew of eight. They were noisy, they were terrible inside, and they could get bogged down. But this was the absolute beginning, this, this British invention. And like so many British inventions, we simply sit back and watch the rest of the world carry it forward while we don't develop it. And you could see that in the interwar years. There are several other reasons why Britain failed to, if not adopt the tank, then at least to utilise its capabilities, to see its full potential. I think partly it can be explained by the sort of conservative attitudes of the military. They're, they're often slow to adopt the latest technology. 
And you can see that in so many other areas over the years. Uh, look at the machine gun. That wasn't adopted or wasn't seen as a natural fit for the infantry. In fact, uh, before the First World War, it was seen as a, the, the, a key way of ruining marksmanship skills. And so people were, generals were, uh, reluctant to absorb the machine gun or find a role for it. Uh, they saw it really as artillery. In fact, artillery itself took a long time to be adopted by the military. Uh, you, you talk about a British uh, military that for a long time fought in squares, fought in lines of infantry. You have a British military that for a long period uh, throughout the 18th century and the first half of the 19th century, saw musketry as a key skill. That people fought in close formation, in lines, in ranks, in squares. And so artillery was very much the sort of uh, runner-up in the military game. And it only slowly came to be adopted into the mainstream army. And, and so it was with the tank. And so between the wars, you had that sort of conservative approach to uh, this new technology. No one quite knew you, how to use the tank, certainly not in the British Army. And many of the generals, certainly cavalry officers, um, looked with absolute horror at the idea of the tank. They were ho horsemen. You know, that's what they believed in. They believed in the lance. They believed in the sabre. They believed in the flexibility of horses. As Tom's grandfather, Bomber Harris, put it, you know, the cavalrymen he came across uh, only wanted to have something that a machine or, or essentially a horse, um, an entity that took hay in one end and crapped out the other. They certainly didn't want a tank. And there was this sort of class thing going on as well. Uh, officers did not like the idea, senior officers did not like the idea of junior officers sort of being in close proximity all the time with the men. They thought that discipline would break down, that there had to be a dividing line. And the one thing about being a tanky being part of a tank crew, is that there is this informality. You know, there is this sort of bond between the guys fighting in a, in a tank. And that sort of comes together, that breaks down both the sort of officer-men distinctions, but also the class distinctions. And that made a lot of people very fearful in the army, pre-war army. But come the Second World War, that all had to change because we were fighting a different enemy. And you have to adapt and survive. And so the tank took over. The person who was arguing for it that developed this concept was the great British strategist and tank tactician and theorist, uh, John Frederick Fuller, uh, colonel at the time, later major general, uh, John Frederick Fuller. A, a strange man, uh, Boney Fuller. He, as we said in our podcast on machine guns, where we also mentioned the tank, Boney Fuller was quite eccentric. He was an occultist. He believed in the unholy trinity. And that's where he got his tank strategy from. The idea of doing everything in threes, that you would assess the front, break through, then spread out in, into the rear to take the strategic goals behind the enemy lines. 
And that became a very effective strategy, this whole concept. He was unfortunately also a fascist, a friend of Hitler's, was at Hitler's 40th birthday. And who should he befriend but Heinz Guderian, later Inspector General of Armoured Forces for the Germans and the godfather of Blitzkrieg. And Guderian took Fuller's ideas, the idea of paralysis and surprise, of using the tank to crush, break through the enemy. And he turned in it into that fantastic German campaign, the, the idea of armoured forces, combined arms operations. And Fuller had come up with Plan 1919, this very concept of combined operations, of using air power, artillery, infantry and armoured forces, of using the tanks to smash through. But the Brits were very slow on the uptake there, and they didn't do anything about it. So you see in the interwar period the, the, the decline, really, of, of the concept of the realization of the potential of the tank in British Army f service. And there are two reasons for that. First of all, Britain didn't want to get involved in wars in Europe anymore, so all the tanks it developed in the interwar years were essentially aimed at the flanks, at the desert. So we had the sort of light and medium Vickers tanks. They didn't even have main armaments. They had machine guns. But there were the Germans beavering away, coming up with their idea of armoured forces, armoured formations. And by the time you get to the sort of Second World War, by the time you get to Blitzkrieg, there you had the Germans with the Panzer Mark IV. Fantastic tank, 25 miles an hour, 75 millimeter gun. It, it was a great tank. But you, know, you can see this evolution of the tank through the century from the Mark I in the First World War, which had a top speed of about 3.7 miles an hour, to the Panzer Mark IV in the Second World War, 25 miles an hour, to main battle tanks today, like the French Leclerc or the Abrams, the Leopard II, the K2 Black Panther from South Korea. And they all have speeds of about 40 to 45 miles an hour. So the tank really came to symbolize everything that was powerful on the battlefield. And really what it has to combine in order to be effective is that balance of mobility, armored protection, and firepower. And that is really the, 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 the sort of elixir. That is really the alchemist's goal to produce the perfect main battle tank. It has to have good firepower, it has to have great mobility, and it has to have protection. And if a tank veers in either direction towards one or the other, if it gets the balance wrong, that's when it becomes vulnerable. So you end up with the Brits, the, the, the Matilda tank, for example, at the start of the Second World War. It only had a sort of maximum speed of nine miles an hour. It was absolutely hopeless, really, as, as a mobile firing platform. You know, then you get tanks that are too mobile but don't have enough firepower or too under-armoured. And, and again, you get these same problems. So 
The other idea that Fuller had, that John Frederick Fuller had, was this concept of the constant tactical factor that every weapon produces its countermeasure. And there's this constant flux, this to and fro between the battlefield. So when the tank was invented, it was really there as the answer to the static sort of evolution of warfare in the First World War, you know, the arrival of the machine gun, the tank was there to overcome it. So the tank arrived, then you got anti-tank weapons. So tanks became faster, better armed, and better armoured. So what happens? The anti-tank weapons get better, and you start getting tandem warheads that can get through that armour or reactive armour. And, and or you get top attack weapons, missiles that, that go down on the soft parts of the tank. And so all the time you have this kind of constant flux. And that is as true today as it was back then. By the time you get to the Second World War, you, that the tank had... had grown out of its infancy and was really, I suppose, in its teen years, it was really finding its feet and becoming critical to the battlefield. And the Germans punched through and they were countered by the T-34 tank. And here you had the, you know, the, the, the Russians coming in, the Soviets coming in with a highly effective tank. You know, it had good tracks, it could go over soft ground, it was diesel powered. So unlike the German tanks, it, it didn't freeze up, the fuel didn't freeze up in, in the cold winters of, of Russia. So again, you had this sort of counter to the, to the German, this block to the German offensive punch. The Americans and the Brits also came up with the tanks very quickly. They had to evolve. They had to find good uh, armoured weaponry, good tank power. And so the US came up with the Sherman tank. The Germans, of course, nicknamed it uh, the Tommy Cooker because it tended to, to blow up every time it was hit or the Ronson uh, named after the lighter because it lit up every time. But this was probably a little unfair. The reason it got that nickname was because of the battles of North Africa that the, the Brits tend to sort of shove a lot of ammo uh, all over the place in the tank and sometimes outside because there was such long distances between logistic resupply hubs. So it was crammed with fuel, extra fuel, extra ammo. And so when it was hit, it was very vulnerable. The advantage of the Sherman tank is that it could be produced in mass quantity. During the Second World War, the US managed to manufacture 50,000 or more Sherman tanks. If you look at the Germans, over-engineered tanks, you know, you only had about 8,500 Panzer IVs, the, the most numerous German tank, 8,500. So you can see the numerical difference. When it came to that great Tiger II tank armed with an 88-millimeter gun, there were only... 1,200 Tigers produced. So the Germans were seriously suffering, not only from over-engineering, but also the short supply of components um, towards the end of the war because 
their production facilities were being bombed so heavily by the US and RAF um, during the latter stages of the war. So they didn't have the, the spare parts combined with the over-engineering, the, the over-specking of their tanks. So those were the, the sort of tanks of the First and Second World War. And so you really evolve during the Cold War period into those sort of tanks designed for the tank battles, the perceived potential tank battles um, of the plains of Europe, the central plains of Europe. And this really informed the production and the design of tanks on both the Soviet side and the Western side during those periods and the sort of great period of main battle tanks. So you get to the battle tanks of today and again it's that same balance of firepower, mobility and armoured protection. So you get the Abrams tank of the US uh, involved in huge numbers of course in things like the 1991 Gulf War um, Operation Desert Storm sort of 1800 Abrams tanks by the time you get to 2003 and uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom you got almost sort of 3000 tanks involved I mean they're, they're the huge numbers were, were deployed and highly successful uh, very few of those Abrams tanks were actually uh, taken out by enemy fire in fact there were more abrams knocked out by friendly fire and blue on blue instance than you did by iraqi forces they're very very effective you also got the challenger tank challenger one during the iraqi period but now the challenger two and soon to be the challenger three the leopard two the south korean k2 and the French Leclerc tank. They're all pretty similar. The only one that's quite different, of course, is the Challenger 2 tank, because it's the only NATO tank that uses a rifled gun. Very powerful. The Challenger tank has a record for the longest uh, kill range of any tank in a battle. I think it was about three miles. And it uses a rifled gun, the Charm gun. But the way things are going, everything is going smooth bore. Most Western tanks now tend to use the German L55 120mm smooth bore gun. Why? Because it has the potential to use guided shells and extended range ammunition, something you can't use with a rifled gun. So every tank tends to use that gun, even the Challenger 3, the next stage. Um, of British tank design will use the Rheinmetall L55 120mm gun. So that is the way sort of things are going. But there were always specialist tanks as well. And during the Second World War, you could see these specialist tanks coming into their own. You got things such as Hobart's Funnies, uh, named after Major General Percy Hobart, who came up with the concept. And this was the idea that you didn't just need main battle tanks like the Sherman or the Churchill. You needed tanks that would facilitate the Normandy landings, that would help the mobility, maneuverability of Western forces that would allow those forces to punch through 
the defences of the Atlantic Wall. So Hobart's Funnies came into their own. And they were all these specialist tanks or specialist armoured vehicles that helped the, the Allied offensive. A part of them were were sort of armed. You got the uh, petard spigot mortar, 290mm uh, mortar on the AVRE, armoured vehicle, Royal Engineers uh, tank, and that was designed to blow up uh, German blockhouses and steel structures. Very effective uh, on the beaches and beyond the beaches, smashing through German defences. You had uh, the crocodile tank, which was the famous flamethrower tank with a 30-foot flame. An amazing bit of kit. Uh, very vulnerable if it was attacked and hit by German Panzerfausts or Panzerschreck anti-tank weapons. Then you got the armoured vehicle, the Hobart's Funnies, designed to get through minefields. The flail tank, the the crab that could rip up the ground in front with a giant flail and get rid of anti-tank mines that were blocking the way. Uh, you had the bull's horn plough that could plough through um, the fences. And a lot of Sherman tanks carried ploughs to rip up those terrible hedgerows and the bocage beyond the beaches uh, that was such a death trap for for western allied vehicles during that period and so many tanks were taken out by ambush by the germans and so the plow tanks were really important for getting through that you had the bobbin tank that could lay down canvas strips rolls of canvas and cloth uh, to to get other vehicles and infantry over the pebble beaches and to mark out minefields you had the fascine um, carrier that would drop bundles of wooden planks to, to allow infantry to cross ditches. So all these specialist tanks were being used. You had the um, amphibious Shermans uh, that could allow tanks to float in. Um, they wouldn't have to use landing craft. They could float in um, ashore on the beaches. But that led to terrible disasters like the 27 uh, Sherman's amphibious tanks that, that sank uh, off the beach at Omaha because they were launched into the sea, rather rough sea, uh, too far offshore, and they broached, water entered them, and they sank. And only two of those amphibious tanks made it ashore. But you could see where the technology was going. You could see how where things were moving and why there was a need for specialist tanks, specialist armoured vehicles. And the war threw up other strange uh, tanks. Um, there was the Bob Semple tank from New Zealand, which was essentially a, an armoured tractor made out of corrugated iron. That never went into production. It was hopeless. You got sort of concepts like the T-28 super heavy tank, 95 tonnes. That never really entered production. Um, later on, um, in the 1950s, 1960s, you got strange tanks like the Ontos or the M50 tank, and that had sort of 
six 106 millimeter recoilless rifles fitted on the front that could take out fixed positions. Again, it was more experimental and was never particularly effective. But all the while, designers, engineers, strategists are coming up with ways to use the, the tank to apply that original concept of John Frederick Fuller to, to punch through the, the enemy forces, to, to steal a march. And along with the main battle tank, the heavy tank, you also got light tanks. So all the way through, you got, the, say, the locust tank in the Second World War, this very light tank. Uh, later on, the Germans, I mean, even to this day, use a light tank. It's only four tons or so, called the Wiesel, which is this tracked vehicle that can move around the battlefield at speed and be used as reconnaissance. The Brits produced the Scorpion tank, which was highly effective, and the Scimitar tank, which is being used in Ukraine today. Uh, the Scorpion had a 75mm gun, the Scimitar has a 30mm rod and cannon, and they're really designed for reconnaissance. And 3,000 Scorpion tanks were made. They all have terrible gearboxes, incidentally, but you know, there's still the concept of it, of having an eight-ton tank with aluminium armour that can race around at speed 45 miles an hour, uh, is very useful. You know, it has an application. It could be used in malaire. It could be used on marshy ground, soft ground. It's why scimitar tanks were deployed to the Falklands to give fire support and reconnaissance capability to the amphibious landing forces there because, you know, it's, it's the, the one sort of light vehicle, armoured vehicle, that could be very useful in that sort of boggy terrain, that, that um, hilly and boggy terrain. So apart from those tanks, you then sort of come into uh, the late 1960s. You got that extraordinary tank, the M551 uh, Sheridan. And I loved that tank as a schoolboy. It was so extraordinary. Here was a, a tank with, I think it was a 152 um, millimeter gun, a very large caliber gun. Uh, on a light tank, on a 15-ton tank. This was a tank that could be amphibious, it could swim, it could be parachuted out of aircraft, it could be put on a pallet and thrown out of the back of a Hercules aircraft, a C-130. And it was extraordinary. And it was so advanced that its gun could not only fire things like canister shot, it could also fire the shillelagh, a command to line of sight, a wire-guided anti-tank missile, way ahead of its time. As I said, it was 1967 that it first came out, and it was totally unreliable. And it had such a large gun that quite often the, the, the turret would crack when the gun fired, and no one ever used the shillelagh missile because, again, it was so unreliable. But it still went on being used right up until the 1990s, early 1990s, mostly to form opposition, to provide sort of dissimilar tanks in, in red flag operations, um, to, to act as the enemy in exercises. But, but a great little tank, and, and certainly as a schoolboy, I just loved that tank. I thought it was so different and uh, so exceptional. So you've had the main battle tank, you've had 
the sort of specialist tanks, you've had the light tanks, and all these went into the conflicts of the 20th century and the 21st century. You know, tanks have always been there. So you had the Battle of Combray, as I mentioned, November the 20th, 1917, that first arrival on the scene of the Mark I tank. Then you get the Second World War, the great tank battles of the Second World War. The first of those tank battles to, to, to pick out really is El Alamein, or rather the second battle of El Alamein of October, November 1942. There was Montgomery with a thousand tanks, and he managed to smash through the Devil's Garden, the minefields and anti-tank pits and traps of the German forces, and outwit and outmaneuver Rommel. He was hugely helped by the breaking of the Enigma Code, of course, so we knew the disposition of German forces. And the German forces only had about 550 panzer tanks by that stage. So they were outnumbered. But that was really the, uh, the first major tank battle of the Second World War and, and a defining moment. It really was the beginning of the end for the Africa Corps. And it was the sort of really the last time that the Brits had to fight on their own um, with, of course, the Australians and New Zealanders. Um, but but essentially, it was the, the first time the Brits had to fight a major tank battle without the help of America in the Second World War. And it was the end of Rommel, the end of the Africa Corps in North Africa. And so that really showed the effectiveness and power of the main battle tank. You then got, of course, the Battle of Kursk, and that was July, August 1943, a defining moment. Again, like El Alamein in North Africa, Kursk was so important to what happened in the Second World War. You had almost 6,000 tanks involved. You had millions of men being involved. By the end of it, the Germans had suffered 200,000 casualties. The Russians had lost... Or, or wounded 800,000. So it was critically important. And again, it was Hitler that, that caused the problem. He kept on telling his generals to attack when his generals were saying, we must withdraw. A bit like Putin in Ukraine today. Never allow a despot to decide what's going to happen on the battlefield because their judgment sucks. And so there you had the Germans repeatedly attacking. And by the end of it, the Germans had you know, committed um, almost 2,500 tanks. They lost sort of 500 or more. The, the Russians, the Soviets, lost about 1,500 tanks. And you had scenes where T-34 tanks were actually ramming German tanks because they had to get too so close in order to, to disable or knock out um, the German armoured thrust. It was very bloody and decisive and the turning point. And really a bit like Stalingrad, it was one of those moments where you knew that Germany had lost. And that was really the time that German forces were on the retreat from that point. And you can really trace the, the, the sort of Battle of Kursk uh, and the fall of Stalingrad, you know, all the way 
on to the fall of Berlin later on and, and, and the end of the Second World War. So tank battles were absolutely critical. And then, of course, tanks appear again. I mentioned the Gulf War, 1991, the Iraqi War of uh, 2003. And you can mention other times in which tanks were very important. You can talk about Tiananmen Square when 100 uh, Type 59 Chinese tanks went in against all those protesting students in Tiananmen Square. And you know, Tank Man, the, the student, the man who uh, stood up against that column of Chinese tanks, you know, they, they've absolutely ingrain themselves in our consciousness. Or you can talk about the coup attempt against Mikhail Gorbachev in 1991 and Boris Yeltsin standing on a tank to address the crowd. All the way through history, the tank seems to have been either at the forefront or in the background, but it's certainly always been there. So those are the tank battles, those are the great tank battles of history and where we've got to today. Well, I suppose where we've got to is Ukraine. And it shows that not only do you need the tank, you need the right tactics and the right strategy. And it's the fact that the Russians haven't had that. It's the fact that the Russians have lost at this moment, as I record, uh, over two and a half thousand tanks that shows that something has gone terribly wrong. And it shows that, again, what J.F. Fuller came up with, the constant tactical factor, is still there. That, you know, there is this constant push between the tank or between the development of a weapon and the countermeasure. And Russian tanks have been hugely vulnerable to so many different types of weapon, whether it's the Enlaw anti-tank weapon, the Javelin anti-tank missile, or whether it's missiles fired from afar, like the Brimstone 2 missile, anti-tank missile, and others uh, that have uh, hit them in their depots and supply hubs, such as the HIMARS rocket. So the tank has proved to be very vulnerable, and certainly vulnerable against the better tactics and better strategy of the Ukrainians. And you can see that the Russians are really running out of effective armor when they started deploying their T-62 tanks designed in the 1950s. Uh, of course, the Russians have claimed that they're now, now sort of going to deploy uh, a few of their T-14 Amata tanks, but they've only got about 14 operational. And again, this tank is not going to be the answer for the Russians. Uh, it's highly unreliable. Um, they've only produced 25 prototypes, 14 operational, and I don't think anyone would want to be deployed in that tank because, you know, like their Terminator armoured vehicle, it, it looks good on a slick promotional video, propaganda video, but it's, it's not going to be effective on the battlefield, particularly if you don't have the right tactics or strategy behind it. So that's Ukraine. And it'll be interesting to see what happens, to see whether the tank will reclaim its place on the battlefield. And certainly it will be critical uh, for the Ukrainian ability to mount effective 
counteroffensives in the coming weeks and months. And yes, the Leopard 2s have started to arrive. You'll get two battalions of Leopard 2 tanks. You'll have a battalion of Abrams tanks. You'll probably have a battalion of Challenger 2 tanks, given that Britain has sent 14 Challenger 2s. Poland already has 14 Challenger 2s. And I have no doubt that those Polish Challenger 2s will end up in Ukrainian hands. So you will have a big punch in the hands of the Ukrainians, who have already received four or 500 uh, T-72 tanks from Poland and the Czech Republic, upgraded versions. So th the tank will re-enter our consciousness. Uh, the tank will again be at the cutting edge, the spear tip of Ukrainian offensives to come. So as a postscript, I suppose one could talk about uh, the extremes, I think. And the extreme I want to talk about is the, the massive tanks that designers have come up with and that autocrats and despots have thought uh, will come to their aid, will help their offensives. And so I want to end really with an extreme, the mouse tank that uh, Adolf Hitler so admired and so wanted. Uh, he wanted 150 in, in German Wehrmacht hands during the Second World War. But in fact, he only saw two wooden mock-ups of the tank. It was going to be 188 tons. It was going to have a 126-millimeter gun. It would have been an extraordinary sight on the battlefield. But again, Germany was being smashed to pulp by Allied bombing raids. It didn't have the components. It didn't have the ability. Like the V2 weapons, there weren't enough. Or in the case of the Maus tank, there weren't any. Uh, I think two prototypes were built and that was all. But it just goes to show that the tank can be overthought, it can be over-engineered, it can be overbuilt, and events can take it over. And that one single vehicle, one single weapon, like the V1 or V2 rockets that I mentioned in my missile bloody bite, that a single weapon system on its own is not enough. You have to have the right strategy, you have to have the right tactics. And the other extreme is the mini tank that now you have pre-positioned and repositioned uh, mine systems, mobile mines and anti-tank rockets that can be autonomous or can be semi-autonomous, guided by operators or guided by their own artificial intelligence that, have, that attract or wield and that can locate themselves around the battlefield ready to ambush enemy forces, enemy troops, enemy armoured vehicles. So you go from the mouse giant tank of World War II to the mini tanks, the mini vehicles of today. And one day soon, you'll probably get a cyber tank, a nano tank, um, a, a miniature tank that can crawl its way around. And of course, I've mentioned in the past, the crawler robots that can hunt out the terrorists hiding in cave systems or hiding in tunnels. Well, in future, you'll get those tiny autonomous crawler tanks, uh, guided tanks. 
And given that the Americans are developing and the West is developing and other countries are developing um, optionally manned fighting vehicles, it will be the crewless tank that will probably come to play an important role in future battles. It was the author George MacDonald Fraser, a great favourite of Tom's, I might add, who said that a nation that forgets that its army is there to kill the enemy is a nation that basically opts to commit suicide. And we have very recently uh, lived in a situation where the hierarchs of armed forces in the West have seemed to concentrate more on things such as diversity, inclusivity, trans rights, all these sorts of matters, sociological matters, human resources matters, than they have for that basic concept, that prerequisite for defense and success, which is killing the enemy, overcoming your adversary. And the war in Ukraine has taught us, has shown us vividly, that it is the ability to defend, attack, fight the enemy successfully that is all important. And the tank is still going to be key to that. It's one element and only one element. But I don't think the tank yet, in spite of technology and anti-tank missiles and drones, the tank hasn't yet seen the end of its time on the battlefield. And so watch for the Ukrainian counteroffensives, and we will see where it takes us. That's all for today. Until next time on Bloody Bites, thank you and goodbye. So it goes. His name is James Jackson. My name is Tom Ashton. You've been listening to Bloody Bites from Bloody Violent History. Please pass this podcast on to a friend. You can contact me at talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com. Thank you and good luck. Thank you.